as the one who delivers us from sin and who upholds us both in this life and in the life to come. And yet there are times that we don't see the fruit of trusting in Him. We know His promises that we will be His people, that He shall be our God, that our sins are forgiven, that our daily bread is, is provided for us. And yet sometimes, sometimes we see those sins that we thought we had conquered continuing to blossom in our lives. Sometimes that person with whom we've sought peace doesn't want peace. Sometimes we go to the doctor and we get exactly the news we didn't want. And what do we do then? Where is our assurance? Well, Romans 4 reminds us that Abraham experienced that same thing. He heard promises from God that were great and glorious and, and in some ways even beyond comprehension. And yet he looked around, and he didn't see the fruit of those promises yet. But Romans 4 tells us no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, even though he didn't see the fullness of what had been promised, he trusted in the one who had made the promises. And because of that, God used that faith as a conduit through which he received the blessing. And then Paul continues, But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so we are to follow after Abraham's example, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, relying on the strength of God who raised him from the dead, knowing that all that Jesus did, he did for those who trust in him. We need to make that our confession knowing that even though we don't always see the outcome of what we hope for, God does, and God is working it all together for our good. So let's confess together in song that our, that our hope is in the Lord, and that our faith is in Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. We do that by singing together number 266, number 266, Thou Art the Way.
And because he is the way and the truth and the life, he calls us to respond by resting confidently in his ways. God gave us the law as he gave it to old Israel, as to those who had been freed from slavery. We were slaves not to Pharaoh and his army, but slaves in a much more deep and fundamental way to sin and to Satan and to death. And as those who have been delivered, even though we don't see the fullness yet of that deliverance, we know it's there, we trust in him who earned it, we live in the light of of that deliverance. And so God says to us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. In short... Out of gratitude for what the Lord has done in Christ, we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. This, Jesus said, is the first and the great commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Two commandments which summarize all the law and all the prophets. And two commandments, frankly, which humble us and should Um, we hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper next week. And uh, we always urge one another to prepare our hearts for that celebration. And part of that is remembering those commands that God has given to us. Remembering those commands and evaluating our life and, and asking... Am I really striving to put off those sins against God's commandments? Am I really striving to live in a way that shows my gratitude to the Lord, trusting all the while in Christ for forgiveness? In our Forms and Prayers book, page 37, if you'd like to follow along in the preparatory form, we're reminded of that calling. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Let us give full attention to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord, as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That we may may next week celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is necessary to examine ourselves fully. And further, to consider carefully that purpose for which Christ ordained and instituted the sacrament, namely his remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of three parts. First, let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness, that they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that he, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine their heart to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own. Indeed, so completely as if they had personally satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. And third, let every one carefully consider their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before his face. And whether they with full sincerity strive to lay aside all enmity, hatred, and envy and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity. All then, all those then, who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace and count as worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. According to the command of Christ and and the Apostle Paul, those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ, and should therefore abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters, those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creature, those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition, all those who despise God, His Word, and His holy sacraments, all blasphemers, those who seek to cause discord, factions, and dissension in the church or in the state, all perjurers, all who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives, all those who continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper so that they feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But... This warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts, as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they are without sin. We do not come to this supper 
to testify about our own perfection and righteousness. But on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and do not have perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lusts of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Beloved, thus assured, let us at the appointed hour come with quiet conscience and with fullness of faith to keep the sacramental feast which our Lord appointed to be a constant memorial of his atoning death until he comes again. And to that end, we need to seek together the Lord's help in prayer. Um, In addition to seeking his help for our preparation for the Lord's Supper, we need to be praying for the needs of the church. Among those, um, we praise the Lord for the wedding of Gabe and Tori on Friday, and, uh, and should be praying that, uh, that the Lord continues to knit them together and strengthen them. Um, we had prayer concerns noted for um, Jamie Elzinga um, as, she, as they continue considering uh, what treatment she needs going forward for cancer. Um, likewise for Norm DeWeird and for Dan Van Enns, both of whom are uh, in the process of the doctors discerning what treatment they need for their cancer. Um, Dan and Kathy's granddaughter, Brielle, who is uh, a little under two weeks old, actually no, a little over two weeks old now, um, was taken into the hospital on Wednesday um, with RSV. She was having a a very hard time breathing. Um, They took her in, put her in ICU, uh, discerned that she had RSV, and began treatment, and that has been going well. She has been improving, so praise the Lord for that. And um, many of you know Jim and Di Walthorn. Um, That'd be Marv II's brother-in-law. Jim has a need for a bone marrow transplant, Uh, so please... Yeah, just keep Jim and Di in your prayers as well. Uh, Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you provide for us all that we stand in need of. We thank you that you gather us together for worship each week, that we might not merely rest physically from our labors, but that we might be reminded of our constant need to rest from our sin and from our old desires. As we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper next week, Lord, we ask that you would enable us honestly to prepare our hearts, discerning where we might be drifting or falling short, and renewing our commitment to Christ by faith. We pray that you would help us to discern whether we are truly sorry for our sins and turning away from them. 
whether we are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, and whether we are resolved indeed to live a life of gratitude before the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would work in the hearts of each one as they engage in that practice. That those who are living before you by faith in Christ might be reassured and might come with joy to the Lord's Supper. And that those who are living in persistent sin and who have convinced themselves through lies that that that's okay might open their eyes to the ugliness of those sins and repent in truth and put their hope in Christ alone and long anew to live by the power of the Spirit and by the instruction of your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would renew and deepen the faith of your people. And, Lord, we pray also in this coming week, as our congregation gathers for its annual meeting, that you would give us wisdom concerning the decisions that will be before us, concerning those men whom you will call to serve as elders and deacons, concerning our church spending, concerning a project that we have in the works. Lord, we ask that you would uh, give us discernment, but also love for one another and unity that arises from our mutual commitment to you. Enable us to interact and speak together in a way that reflects the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Lord, we ask too that you would bless our consistory and our council as these both intend to meet in this coming week. We pray that you would grant wisdom and understanding and insight to those men and that you would guide them as they seek to minister to the church, preparing the church to minister to one another and to the world. Lord, we thank you for the the many answered prayers that we have seen. The healing that you have provided to so many, the comfort with which you have filled our hearts, the encouragement that you provide on our darker days. We thank you for the wedding of Gabe and Tori on Friday. And we ask that you would continue to watch over and bless them and that you would enable us to encourage and strengthen them as they grow together as as a couple. Lord, we pray for others in our midst who are preparing for marriage. We ask that you would uh, prepare them well. We pray for those who are expecting the birth of children. Lord, we, uh, we're so thankful for the covenant children that you have set among us. And we pray that you would knit those children together in the womb and bring them forth at the appropriate time, healthy and strong, their parents having been well prepared to receive them and to raise them up to know and love you. Lord, we thank you for all of our children and we pray that you would enable all of us together as a congregation to disciple them, reminding them day by day as infants and toddlers, as little children and young people, teens, and even into their adulthood, reminding them of your precious promises and of what it looks like to live by faith in those promises. Lord, we ask that you would continue to build up and strengthen our children and our young people. 
that you would lead them away from temptation and evil, that you would show them what it means to live a life of repentance and faith, and so, Lord, cause them to live more faithfully before you than we have been able to do, that each generation might grow closer to you rather than drifting away. We pray, Father, for those who are in particular need of your guidance and care and help. Lord, we pray for some of our, lo- our loved ones who have been in need. We think of, of Jim Walthorn as, as he uh, looks to needing a, a bone marrow transplant. We pray that you would provide healing for him and comfort for him and die. We pray for Brielle as that little girl has been uh, suffering with RSV. We ask that you would uh, give her the healing she needs and that you would comfort and, and encourage both her and her parents. We pray for Sherry's mom, Lucille, as she has been dealing with uh, pneumonia and a mass on her lung and, and also the confusion that arises from dementia. Lord, we ask that you would comfort and strengthen Lucille and, and uh, provide encouragement for her family as they serve her. We pray for others of our loved ones abroad. Lord, we ask that you would... Uh, continue to watch over uh, John's grandson Barrett and Jane's sister Caroline and Joby Lammers and uh, Case's brother Bill and, and others that we've been praying for. Lord, we ask that you would comfort and strengthen them. And we pray for those in our midst who are uh, dealing with ailments of various sorts. Lord, you know the, the many in our midst who are dealing with cancer. We pray that you would provide healing and strength for them. We think of Jamie and Norm and Dan, of Joel and Bob and Bruce and Marge. We ask that you would watch over each of them, as well as the spouses of those who are married. We ask that you would give day by day the comfort they need and healing and the reminder that you are at work in this situation. Lord, you know how overwhelming it can seem to hear the diagnoses, to think about the treatment options, to watch the test numbers fluctuate up and down. But Lord, we know that you who made us, who knit us together in the womb, you have ordained each situation we face, each cross that we must bear. And so we ask that you would enable them to face these challenges arising from cancer with confidence in you and with joy in your good provision. We pray for continued healing for Emily as she recovers from foot surgery. We praise you for for giving her relief from her pain and improvement as she, uh, yeah, as she just experiences the healing that you have been bringing about. We pray for continued healing for Bryce And we thank you for the amazing and and quick healing that he has experienced. We pray for uh, continued healing for Evie Rutgers and and for others in our midst who are dealing with illnesses of the season and aches and pains that are persistent. Lord, we pray that you would provide as only you are able. Lord, there are so many concerns that we have for our nation, so many struggles that we have in our families, 
Lord, you know them all. We lay them all before you with confidence that you are not only able to provide what is needed, but that you are able to use us despite our weakness to bring blessing and healing and help. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do so and that you would give us confidence as we see your work in our lives and in our midst, confidence in your goodness, your grace, and your blessing. And now we ask all of this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen. Well, as we prepare to look together to God's Word from Genesis, uh, let's stand and sing together from Psalm 102, Selection B. Number 102, Selection B, we'll sing stanzas 1, 3, and 4. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Genesis 17. We're pausing for a few weeks in our study of uh, 2 Peter as we're drawing near to Christmas. Obviously, that's, uh, that's on our minds. We see the decorations going up everywhere, the sales in the store, and we... we I don't know about you, but when the calendar turns to December in our house, then a little bit of the panic starts because, oh, we haven't gotten gifts for all of these different people, and uh, it's a busy season. And a good season, we spend a lot of time visiting with family and friends, 
But it's so easy to get caught up in the traditions and in the busyness and forget what we really celebrate at Christmas. And so we're going to take a few weeks to look at the promise that God gave, the promises that led to the birth of Christ. And the first text, and I mean we could do that for two, three years straight and still not exhaust anywhere near all of them. But we're going to start with a promise that he gave concerning the coming son in Genesis 17, verses 15 to 19. But as we prepare to do that, I'd like to read really the the first 22 verses of Genesis 17 so we see that context. Moses writes, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you must be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male among your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your, of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father... Twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Amen. 
Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved family of God in Christ, it's safe to say that most of us have been raised with some version of the American work ethic. That's the the outlook that was taught to us by our parents and by our more rural communities, where they teach us to always give our best effort, to always do more than the bare minimum, and to be resourceful, thinking outside the box, finding creative ways to do things better and faster and cheaper. Now, much of what we call the American work ethic is really the Christian work ethic. For instance, the idea that we should always do our best. That's straight from Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Much of the American work ethic actually is the Christian work ethic. However, not every part of what has been gathered together into that American work ethic is consistent with our Christian worldview or with the Bible itself. And one such inconsistency is the idea that no one is irreplaceable. You know that concept well. At some point in every job place or every place of employment, someone gets a little full of themselves. Someone starts thinking that he is the irreplaceable cog in this particular piece of machinery. He starts demanding more money or more privileges. He starts acting like he owns the joint. And somebody has to come up to him and remind him, whether gently or not, you know, if you were to die on your way into work tomorrow, we'd still open the doors. We'd still get product into the trucks. We'd still make money. We'd miss you, but we'd still go on. And he's brought back down a little bit, right? He's, he's reminded that eh, maybe he needs to be humble and remember his place in the whole scheme of things. Well, it's wise to be humble. But the proverb that we speak there is incorrect, is not biblical. While it's true that life would go on and the work would still get done and the world would continue if any one of us would suddenly be not there, it doesn't follow that any of us is replaceable. Because God made each individual unique. God gave to each one a particular calling and particular gifts and a particular role. And there is no one else who is able to fill that role in precisely the way that you do. That's part of the lesson that's wrapped up in this text that we find in Genesis 17. Abraham had embraced God's promise to love him, to bless him, and to bless others through him. However, Abraham also knew that God's blessing was to come by means of a son. But Abraham was old, and so was his wife. And there was no son. And so they took matters into their own hands. Sarai gave him her servant, Hagar. Hagar was young, and Sarai was not. If the promise has to come through a son, and we've not been given a son, then we'll find a way to get a son, they determined. And they did. To Hagar was born Ishmael. However, no one is replaceable in God's sight. 
God had promised a son, not by whatever means necessary, but by Abraham's wife. And he was not willing to substitute another. Nor was he willing to substitute for Sarai, Hagar. And so here, God reminds Abraham and also us that the individuals he has ordained to have a role in his covenant are not replaceable by others. Each one has a unique place. Each one has a unique role. All culminating in one particular son who has the unique role and who is the only one who is the way and the truth and the life. The Lord vows to fulfill his promises by sending a special, a unique, and irreplaceable son. That's the theme that we find in this passage. The Lord vows to fulfill his promises by sending a special son. And the first thing we see concerning that theme is how this son is one whose influence would be unbounded. Remember, as we look at that, the context here. God had called Abram sometime before, back in chapter 12. We read how Abram was in a distant land and God called him to pick up and to move, to go to a different land where God would show him. And Abram believed God believed his promises, rejoiced that the Lord would not only bless him, but would bless the nations through him. Later on, God promised to bless Abraham with and through a son. Through that son, he said, a multitude of descendants would be given to Abraham. And again, Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now in chapter 17, God has appeared again. He has reaffirmed those promises to Abraham, the promise of countless descendants, the promise of a land, of blessing, the promise that kings and nations would be blessed through Abraham, and the ultimate promise, I will be God to you and to your children after you. And then the Lord gives Abraham a sign, the sacrament of circumcision. But that is a sign and seal of things yet to come, of promises that would be received through a son. And that son, God says, will come to Abraham through his wife, now, Abraham's wife had been named Sarai, but now he says, Sarah shall be her name. Now, those two names are very similar, not just in English, but also in Hebrew. But the slight differences are substantial. The Lord changes Sarai's name by adding one letter, the, name he, or the, the letter He, which is one of the Hebrew versions of our letter H. It's the same letter that's added to Abram to make Abraham. It's the same letter that's added to the generic word for gods, Elim, to make the word that describes the true God, Elohim. So in other words, he changes her name in a way that uniquely identifies her with Abraham and with God himself. But more than that, Sarai means my princess. That's a beautiful name for your wife, isn't it? My, she's my princess. She's the one who exercises authority in my home. Beautiful name for your wife. But it's exclusive, isn't it? She's my princess, not yours. She's the princess in my home, not other homes. 
But Sarah is more generic. It simply means princess. She's not my princess. She's the princess. It takes that that name that's personalized, that's unique, that's limited, and it expands it. She's not my princess. She is the princess, and that's important. Because God was showing that Sarah's influence would be wide, would be unbounded because of the son that she would bring. He says in verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Notice that. He says, I will bless Sarah, and I will give you a son through her. Sarah will be the conduit through which the blessing to Abraham will come. All the fuss with Hagar arose from unbelief in God's power to keep his promises. Sarah was Abraham's wife, and so through Sarah would come Abraham's blessing. In God's plan, no one is replaceable. But that blessing is not only for Abraham. This will be a son whose influence is unbounded. So the Lord says of Sarah, I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Her son will have two sons, and from those sons will come two nations, Edom, the descendants of Esau, and Israel, the descendants of Jacob. Also, says the Lord, kings of people shall come from her. Many years later, Moses would record in Genesis 36 all the kings of Edom, kings numerous and of various rank, who were ruling in the land even when Israel was still enslaved in Egypt. And then, too, there were the many kings who would come to Israel. Saul, David, and Solomon. And then all the kings of Israel after Jeroboam broke the ten tribes away and also the many kings of Judah. All of those came in the line of the son whom God had now promised from Sarah's womb. But listen. Ultimately, even those nations and kings were but a deposit, a foretaste of the true blessing. Isaac, Sarah's son, would not himself bring the fullness of the promise from God. God would bless him greatly. God would fulfill richly the promise that he spoke. But like his mother Sarah, Isaac would merely be a conduit through which the greater promise would come. Because from Isaac's line would come another son. He too would be the fruit of Sarah's womb. He would be her son, many generations removed. And by that son would come countless nations, not just two or three. They would come not from him, but to him and through him. They would flock to that later son from people all the world over. And he would bring forth kings. The son himself would be crowned king of kings. And before him would bow eventually every king who ever has or will rule. But more than that, his own people would be kings. Sitting on thrones, surrounding his throne, ruling over the creation with him. Exercising the dominion that man had forsaken in his sin. Unbounded shall be this son's kingdom. And endless the glory that he possesses. Because, of course, this greater son of Sarah is none other than the son of God, Jesus Christ. He truly is the son whose influence is unbounded and whose blessing is beyond measure. However, that son's coming, like the son given directly to Abraham and Sarah, would come in a way that was 
inconceivable in the eyes of men. Abraham saw it immediately. The coming of this son, whom God was now explicitly promising would come through Sarah, that was inconceivable. We see it in verse 17, when the prophet records that Abraham laughed. Why did Abraham laugh? It was not the laughter of mockery or of unbelief, because God doesn't rebuke Abraham. In fact, the Lord would later say of Abraham, as we read in our assurance of pardon, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Abraham's laughter did not arise from unbelief. No, Abraham laughed to express his delight at God's unexpected and unfathomable ways. Again, this is... This is not an expression of doubt, it's an expression of wonder. I mean, put yourself in Abraham's place. He's 99 years old. Then as now, men expected to have children when they were in their young adulthood, in their 20s, in their 30s, when they were young and spry and able to get by on four or five hours of sleep. And his wife was 90. She was decades past the age when women expect to give birth to a child. So Abraham laughs, delighted at God's unexpected, inconceivable ways. But even in the midst of his astonished laughter, Abraham reveals faith. Before the smile could appear on his lips, Moses records, Abraham fell on his face. Folks, that's a position of worship. He was bowing humbly before the Lord. He was expressing his submission to God and to his will. In fact, falling face first before the Lord was a visible confession. I believe. I trust that you are able to do this. I am confident that you will fulfill precisely the word that you have spoken. Again, we heard it in Romans chapter 4, didn't we? He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Now, of course, that's not to say that Abraham fully, fully understood how God was going to do what he was doing. And look at his next words to the Lord in verse 18. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now this isn't, again, this isn't an expression of doubt, but he wonders, why not Ishmael? I have a son, a perfectly good son whom I love. I don't doubt your ability to do what you're doing or what you've said you'll do, but, but why not this one? This son that you've already given me, this son whom I love. Abraham's not rejecting God's plan, but, but he doesn't want his other son to be neglected, to be forgotten. And he won't be. In verse 20, God assures him that Ishmael will receive blessing. Ishmael also will be the father of nations. But Ishmael will not be the one who fulfills God's promise. He will not be the conduit through which comes the blessing. God will fulfill his promises, including his promises to Ishmael, but in ways that confound the plans of men in ways that show that the blessing is not from man, but from God. 
And so also would be the coming of the greater son. The coming of that son would come in a way similarly inconceivable in the eyes of men. The virgin would conceive and bear a son, says Isaiah 7 verse 14. An entrance that seems biologically impossible. And yet, the son who came in precisely the way God promised. And more than that, the king of kings, born in a stable and laid in a manger, a feed trough. The ruler of Israel, exiled in his infancy to the land of Egypt. And then raised up of all places in the backwater of Galilee. It would be an inconceivable entrance for the king of kings and the desire of the nations. But thus it had to be done that it could be clearly seen that this was not done by the design or the power or the intent of men. But it was done only and entirely by the power and the wisdom of God. Understand that with regard to the coming of the Son whose birth we celebrate at this season. Understand that His coming was in every respect and detail according to the plan and the purpose and the power of God. And having understood that, be assured this Son did come from God. Only God, only the Lord could accomplish an entrance that was so inconceivable, so laughable in the mind of men. Well, God heard Abraham's request with regard to the young man Ishmael. And as I said, he's going to mention Ishmael and assure Abraham that he too will be blessed. But first, and with the last verse we're going to consider, he refocuses Abraham. Because he doesn't want him getting sidetracked with Ishmael. He wants his eye on the prize, as it were. He wants him to focus on the son who is promised, whose significance would be unending. And that's the last thing we see here. The word order for the first clause in verse 19 is notable. The Hebrew language, you know, we're, we're so used to English where we learn the rules just so we can learn the innumerable ways the rule is broken, Right? That doesn't happen in Hebrew for the most part. The word order is not quite but almost inflexible. Verb, noun, direct object, indirect object. That's the way it almost always is. So when it differs, you notice that. It stands out. It's like a neon sign emphasizing what's out of order. And that's what we have here. Instead of verb, noun, we have noun, verb, which throws the emphasis back on the noun, which in this case is Sarah. God said, no, Sarah shall bear to you a son. Again, the direct object and indirect object are flipped around. Emphasizes again, there's something going on here. There's an emphasis that needs to be laid. He wants him to see Sarah, son, Ishmael, you love him, that's good. Ishmael's going to receive promises, that's fine. But your eye needs to be on Sarah and the son that comes from him. Your focus needs to be on Sarah and the one through whom all the promises will be funneled. And then the Lord gives Abraham some instruction about naming that son. He says, you shall call his name Isaac. 
Hebrew names generally have a meaning, and Isaac means he laughs, a reference to Abraham's laughter. Now, that's not a rebuke, but it's a reminder. It says this child is, in fact, special. It says this child in his sending, is a, or in his coming, is a great blessing. And it reminds Abraham that God's blessing, God's gracious gift needs to be his focus at all times. Every time he calls that son, every time he speaks to that son, every time he addresses that son, he's going to remember how special his coming was, how unique and how divine his purpose is. We see again that the promise of Isaac is in the end a promise of Christ. Isaac would begin the covenant line of which Jesus Christ would be the end. Isaac would plant the covenant, would lay the foundation as it were. And Jesus would build a temple upon it at the cost of his body and blood with the living stones of those given to him by the Father in which the Holy Spirit would dwell forevermore. Jesus is the greater Son who would earn the blessings of the covenant with his life and death and resurrection and who would bring the fullness of those blessings to all who look to him. Our calling then is to respond to that greater Son the way that God called Abraham to respond. We must accept God's plan, not our plan, Not the plan of wise men among us. We must accept God's plan as good and trustworthy. That doesn't come natural to sinful men. Adam's fallen race almost always wants to make its own plan. We want to figure it out ourselves. We want to do it with our hands. And those of the world continually question God's purposes. What about Ishmael? What about my way? Can't we go? But God says no. Sarah shall bear for you a son. My plan, my purpose is my way unto my glory. And our response must be the response of Abraham. Not furrowing our, our brow about not being able to go our own way. Not continuing to propose alternatives. No, but instead falling before the Lord in submissive worship laughing with delighted wonder at what God has ordained to do and then accepting His plan even even though God's ways are so inconceivable to the human heart. In faith, we must follow God, trusting Him, obeying Him, that we might receive the blessing He has vowed. May God grant to us the faith of Abraham. As we celebrate in this season the birth of the greater son. May we not be distracted by all the busyness and by all the stuff and by all the plans and by all the stress and forget to bow before the Lord in worship laughing with wonder at the goodness and the grace He has shown us and eagerly looking forward to the promise of the Son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Your ways do indeed make us laugh with wonder when we consider how amazing and unexpected are Your ways. Pray that you would enable us 
to receive with a wholehearted and undoubted faith the promises that you have given and the testimony of the works that you have provided. And we pray that you would keep our eyes upon Jesus, not being distracted by the stress of the moment, not being derailed by the plans and purposes of men, but remembering always the amazing promises that you have given your people and the amazing Son by whom those promises come to pass. Lead us, we pray, in testifying to what you have done and in giving you all the glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, in response, let's stand and sing together hymn number 190, Thus saith the mercy of the Lord. We're going to sing all the stanzas of number 190. Let us pray together. Father, as we worship you now with the giving of our tithes and our offerings, enable us to give these offerings with gratitude unto you, acknowledging that all the good we have received, physically and spiritually, have come from your fatherly hand. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song this morning is number 67B. Number 67B, notice that it covers two pages there.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.